Chapters 41 and 42 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 41. The Earl's Perplexity. A footman was lighting the lamps in the hall when the party entered. Are all well in the house, Prout? inquired Mr. Force. All well, sir. My lord is taking his afternoon nap. The ladies are not down yet. The first dinner bell has just rung, replied the man. Mama and the girls are dressing for dinner, Papa. I will just run up and see, said Wynnette, flying up the stairs. Then we had better go to our rooms at once, Lee, and get some of the dust of travel off us before we go to dinner, said Mr. Force, as he followed Wynnette upstairs, though in a more leisurely fashion. Perhaps he was willing to put off, even for a few minutes, the painful task of communicating his discouraging news to Odalite. When Mr. Force reached his apartment, he found Wynnette standing in the middle of the room, under the hands of her mother's ebony-maid, Gypsy, who was helping her off with her duster. "'Where is your mother, my dear?' he inquired. "'Oh, they are all gone down to the drawing-room. Prout was mistaken in thinking that they were not there. But, Papa, I am not sorry. Bad news will keep, because being already spoiled, it cannot spoil any more. And now we must hurry and dress, or the porridge will be cold.' I mean, dinner will be kept waiting. And saying this, Wynnette caught up her hat and duster, and, followed by Gypsy, passed into her own room, which she occupied jointly with Odalite. Mr. Force used such dispatch in dressing that he was the first one of the three returning travelers who entered the drawing-room. He found no one present but Mrs. Force, Odalite, Elva, and Rosemary. Mrs. Force hurried to meet him, while Odalite stood pale and waiting, and the two younger girls looked eagerly expectant. "'What news, what news?' anxiously inquired the lady. "'Prout has just told us of your return. "'What news? "'Oh, why don't you answer, Abel?' "'My dear, because I have no good news to tell you,' he gravely replied. Mrs. Force let go the hand she had seized, and sank down upon the nearest sofa. Odalite turned away and bowed her head upon her hands. Rosemary and Elva were both too much awed by the grief of their elders, even to come forward and greet the returned father and friend.' Nor did Mr. Force even observe the omission. His mind was absorbed by thoughts of his daughter's distress. Mrs. Force was the first one to break the painful silence. "'Then it was all true as to the date of Anglesia's first wife's death?' she inquired, in a faint voice. "'The date on Lady Mary's tombstone is August 25th, 18 blank, gloomily replied Mr. Force. "'Then the man's marriage with Mrs. Wright on the first of the same August is invalid?' as a matter of course, and the ceremony begun, but not completed, with our daughter in the following December, gives Anglesia a shadow of a claim on Odalite? A shadow of a claim only, yet a sufficiently dark and heavy and oppressive shadow. And now, dear Elfrida, let us talk of something else, said Mr. Force, gravely. First, tell me about that fraudulent obituary notice in the Angleton Advertiser. Did you find out how it was affected? inquired the lady. Yes, on the evening of the 20th of August, after the last copy of the paper had been printed, and the whole edition sent off to its various subscribers, the editor and proprietor, one Purdy, went home, leaving the type undistributed on the press, and his pressman, one Norton, in charge of the office. There was besides the editor's young son, whom Norton sent away. Later in the evening this Norton distributed the type on the first two columns of the first page, and then was joined by Angus Anglesia, who had furnished the manuscript for the false obituary notice, and had bribed the printer to set it up and print it off. 
so then several copies of the paper were thrown off, in all respects like unto the regular edition of the day, with the exception of the first two columns, in which the false obituary notice and memoir were substituted for the report of an agricultural fair, or something of the sort, and these last fraudulent copies were mailed at different times to me. You see the motive, it was to entrap and humiliate us. The same night, or the next morning, Norton absconded with the bribe he had taken from Anglesia. You know this to be true? As well as I can know anything that I have not been an eye and ear witness to. I will tell you how I unraveled the mystery when we have more time. I wish to speak to Odalite now, my dear, said Abel Force. And he crossed to where his daughter stood, put his arm around her waist, drew her to his heart, and said, Cheer up, my darling girl. You shall be as safe from all future persecution by that scoundrel as if he were in the convict settlement of Norfolk Island, where he ought to be. Try to forget all about him, my dear, and remember only how much we all love you, and how much we are anxious to do for your happiness. Odalite put her arms around her father's neck and kissed him in silence, and smiled through her tears. Rosemary and Elva now came up and put out their hands to welcome the travelers home. Lee came in, and almost in silence shook hands with his aunt and the two younger girls, and then took the hand of Odalite, pressed it, dropped it, and turned away to conceal his emotion. Lastly entered the earl, leaning on the arm of his secretary. He smilingly greeted the returning travelers, and hoped that they had had a pleasant journey. Fortunately the announcement of dinner prevented the necessity of a reply. The earl gave his arm to his sister, smiling warmly as he said, but it is you who must support me, my dear. And they led the way to the dining-room. Almost immediately after dinner, when the party returned to the drawing-room, Lord Enderby excused himself and retired to his own apartments, attended by his secretary and his valet. Mr. and Mrs. Force and the young people remained in the drawing-room, where Mr. Force gave a more detailed account of his journey into Lancashire, his researches at Englewood, and all the circumstances that led to the detection of the perpetrators of the obituary fraud. "'That is the way, or rather one way, in which false evidence can be manufactured,' he said in conclusion. It was late before the excited family party retired to rest. It was not until after breakfast the next morning, when the young people had gone to take a walk on the edge of the cliff, and the three elders were seated together in the library of the castle, that Mr. Force told Lord Enderby the story of his journey into Lancashire and its results. The poor earl looked the image of distress and perplexity. His face, that was always pale, grew paler. His frame, that was always infirm, grew shaky. And his voice, always weak, became tremulous, as he said, I am amazed beyond all measure. I am grieved to the very soul. And I am all but incredulous. Angus Anglesia, my comrade in India— my brother-in-arms, as I used fondly to call him. Angus Anglesia, the very soul of truth and honor, not overwise or prudent, but brave and good to his heart's core. I have not seen him for years, it is true, but I had lost no faith in or affection for him. Circumstances have separated us, but neither coldness nor distrust had estranged us. And now you tell me, Force, that this man has radically, fundamentally changed his very nature, his very self, that the man of pure truth, honor, and heroism has turned into an utter villain, a thief, a forger, a bigamist, an unequaled scoundrel. The earl paused and groaned as in pain. I am sorry to grieve you, my lord, but I have brought unquestionable proofs of the charges that I have made, said Mr. Force. 
I admit the proofs, but great heavens, that a man could so change in so few years. My comrade in India, my friend whom I loved as a brother, who could have thought it of him? Elfrida, you knew him in your youth. Could you have believed this of him? Not when I first met him in your company, my brother, but then I was a very young girl, scarcely fifteen years of age, and the judgment of such a girl on the merits of a young man, especially when he is a young officer in a brilliant uniform, and with a more brilliant military record, is not infallible, you know, replied Mrs. Force, evasively. Yet you could not have believed this infamy of him. No, certainly not, replied the lady, more to soothe the nervous invalid than to express her own convictions. Believe me, I am deeply grieved to have been the instrument of giving you so much pain. I would not have told you had I not deemed it my duty to do so, nor even under that impression had I supposed it would have distressed you so much. My dear Force, you were right to tell me, though the hearing gives me sorrow. Sorrow and perplexity, for I cannot reconcile the story you have told and proved with all my previous knowledge of Anglesia. I wonder, has he become insane? I did hear that he had been terribly affected by the death of his wife, whom he adored. I was in Switzerland at the time, and when I returned to England, in the autumn, I heard that he had gone abroad. I think, perhaps, he may have become insane. Perhaps so, said Mr. Force, but he mentally added, as much insane as, and no more, than every criminal is insane. Morally insane, but not therefore irresponsible. Force, said the earl, whatever may have been the cause of Anglesia's fall, your daughter Odalite must be released from her bonds. Chapter 42 Enderby Castle While the elders consulted together in the library, the four young girls, Odalite, Wynnette, Alva, and Rosemary, accompanied by Lee and escorted by Joshua, walked across the courtyard and entered the old castle to explore its interior. Lee had in his hands a little guidebook to the castle and town of Enderby, to which he referred from time to time. Climbing over piles of rubbish, of fallen stones, covered with moss and lichen, and half buried in rank growth of thistles and briars, they entered an arched doorway and found themselves upon the stone floor of the great feudal castle hall, which had once re-echoed to the orgies of the feudal baron and his rude retainers after a hunt, a foray, or a battle but now silent and abandoned to the birds of night and prey. At one end of this hall was a great chimney, a chimney so vast that within its walls, from foundation stone to roof, a modern New York apartment house of seven floors might have been built, with full suites of family rooms on every floor. "'And this is only the hall fireplace,' said Lee. "'The kitchen fireplace is immediately below this, and still broader and deeper than this. But we cannot get to it because it is buried in fallen stones and mortar.' At least, I mean, all entrance to that part of the castle is. They now noticed that the cavity of the deep chimney-place was furnished on each side with stone benches, built in with the masonry. Here, said Lee, the wandering minstrel or the holy pilgrim of the olden time found warm seats in winter to thaw out their frozen limbs. Next they noticed that the hearth of the fireplace, raised about a foot above the level of the floor, extended about a quarter of the length of the hall itself. This, said Lee, must be the dais for the upper portion of the table, at which sat my lord baron, his family, his knights, and his guests, while on each side of the lower part sat the retainers. But say, here is a trap-door. Immediately under here must have stood my lord baron's chair. Let us look at that. Lee referred to the guide-book and read, Immediately before the hall fireplace and on the elevated dais is a trap-door connected with a walled-in shaft, 
descending through the castle kitchen under the hall, and into the dungeon of the dark death under the foundations of the castle. In the rude days of the feudal system, prisoners taken in war, or criminals convicted of high crime, were let down through that trap-door into the dungeon of the dark death, and never heard of more. And the lord of the castle held high festival above, while his crushed victims perished below. "'Err!' cried Wynnette with a shudder. "'That accounts for my murderous instincts against Anglesia and other culprits. I inherit it through my mother, from all these vindictive old vampires.' "'Oh, Lee, let us go away. I don't like it. I don't like it,' pleaded little Elva. "'No more do I,' said Rosemary. "'Stay,' said Lee. "'Here is something more about the place.' And he read, "'This trapdoor has not been opened for more than fifty years. Tradition says that early in the last century a groom in the service of the Lords of Enderby secretly married my lady's maid, and as secretly murdered her and threw her body, together with that of her infant, down the shaft.' for which crimes he was tried, condemned, and executed, and afterward hung in chains outside the wall of Carlisle Castle. The trap-door was ordered to be riveted down by the then-ruling lord of Enderby, and has never since been raised. Err, again muttered Wynnette, that's worse than the other. Let us go away. Oh, I want to go away, wailed Elva, trembling. Oh, please, please come away, Lee, pleaded Rosemary. Now just wait one moment, dears. You will not mind looking out of these windows, loopholes, or whatever they are, that open through the twelve-foot thickness of the outer wall. Great pyramids of Egypt, what mighty builders were these men of old! exclaimed Wynnette, walking off toward the east side of the hall, where there were a row of windows six feet high and four feet wide on the inner side, but diminishing into mere slits on the outer side. Here the baron's retainers could safely draw their bows and speed their arrows through these loopholes at the besiegers without, said Wynnette curiously examining the embrasures. But, ah, me, in times of peace, what a dark hall for the dame and her maidens. Well, let us go on now, said Lee. There is no means of entering the lower portions of the building from the outside, but I suppose there must be from the inside. So they left the hall by the side door and entered a corridor of solid masonry, so dark that Lee had to take a match and a coil of taper from his pocket and strike a light. This led them at last into a large circular room, with lofty but narrow windows, through which the morning sun streamed, leaving oblong patches of sunshine on the stone floor. A door on the side of the room, between two of the windows, had fallen from its strong hinges, and the opening was dark. Lee approached it and discovered the top of a narrow flight of stairs built in the thickness of the wall. Lee referred to his guidebook and read, Strong chamber in the round tower west of the great hall, ancient guardroom for men-at-arms, a secret staircase in the wall whose door was in former times concealed by the leathern hangings of the room, leads down to the torture chamber below. "'Who will go down with me?' inquired Lee. "'I will,' promptly answered Wynnette. "'And I,' added Odalite. Elva and Rosemary would have shrunk from the adventure, but partly driven by the fear of being left alone, and partly drawn by curiosity, they consented to descend into the depths." Lee preceded the party with his lighted taper, and they followed him down the steep and narrow stairs, and found themselves last in a dark circular room, with strong iron-bound doors around its walls. Some of these had fallen from their hinges, showing openings into still darker recesses. Lee, with his taper, crept along the wall exploring these, and found them to be dark cells, scarcely with space enough to hold a well-grown human being. Many of them had rusting staples in the walls, with fragments of broken iron chains attached. 
Even the young midshipman shuddered and refrained from calling the attention of his companions to the horror. But he made more discoveries than these. Groping about the gloomy place with his wax taper, he came upon various rusted and broken instruments of torture, the thumbscrew, the iron boot, the rack, all of which he had recognized from the descriptions he had read of these articles elsewhere. And yet there were other instruments that he had read of, yet knew at sight to be of the same sort, so that at last, when he came upon the grim headsman's block, it was with a feeling of relief. "'What are those things, Lee?' inquired Odalite, following him. "'Oh, rubbish, dear. Be careful where you step. You might fall over them,' he replied. "'And I think we had better leave this place and go to the upper air now,' he added, groping along the walls to find the door at the foot of the stairs down which they had come. He found the place, but found also something that escaped his notice.' It was a niche in the wall beside the door. The niche was about six feet high and two feet broad. The opening was rough and ragged at the sides, and there was a pile of rubbish at the foot, which on examination proved to be the fallen stones and mortar. Lee trimmed his taper until it gave a brighter light, and then referred to his guidebook and unadvisedly read aloud from it. In the torture chamber, Kunigunda, at the foot of the stairs leading down to this dreadful theater of medieval punishment stands in the right side of the wall a curious niche, high and narrow, which was once the living grave of a lovely woman. About fifty years ago the closing front wall of the sepulchre fell and revealed the secret of centuries. A tradition of the castle tells of the sudden disappearance of the Lady Cunigunda of Enderby, the eldest daughter of the Baron, and the most beautiful woman of her time, for whose hand princes and nobles had sued in vain, because her affections had become fixed on a yeoman of my lord's guard. In the spring of her youth and beauty she was mysteriously lost to the world. Her fate would never have been discovered, had not the closing wall of the niche at the foot of the stairs in the torture chamber fallen and disclosed the upright skeleton and the stone tablet, upon which was cut, in old English letters, the following inscription, Cunigunda, who for dishonoring her noble family by a secret marriage with a common yeoman, was immured alive in the twentieth year of her age, January twenty-fourth, 1236, requiescat in pace. The poor bones, after six centuries, were coffined and consigned with Christian rites to the family vault at Enderby Church. I say, Lee, what a perfectly devilish lot those old nobles were. I, proud of my ancestry, I would much rather know myself to be descended in a direct line from Darwin's monkeys, said Wynnette. But, my dear, these men lived in a rude and barbarous age. Their descendants in every generation have become more civilized and enlightened, you know. No, I don't know, and I like the monkeys a great deal better as forefathers. Shall we try to find our way to the dungeon of the dark death? You know it is under the kitchen which is under the great hall. But stop a minute, said Lee, and he referred again to the guidebook, and then added, No, we cannot go there, there is no reaching it. The only entrance into that deep perdition is by the trap-door on my lord baron's dais, and down the hollow brick-walled shaft that runs through the middle of the kitchen into the abyss below. I am glad of it. Let us go to the upper light. Look at Elva, said Odalite in an anxious tone. Lee turned the light of the taper on the little girl, and saw her leaning, pale and faint and dumb, on the bosom of her sister. My poor little frightened dove, why, Elva, darling, what is the matter? tenderly inquired the midshipman. The kind sympathy broke down the last remnant of the child's self-possession, and she broke into a gush of sobs and tears. Lee handed his taper to Wynnette and took Elva up in his arms, laid her head over his shoulder, and carried her upstairs, 
followed by Odalite, Wynnette, and Rosemary. In the sun and air, Alva recovered herself, and the little party left the ruins to return to the new castle. "'I wonder my Uncle Enderby does not have that dreadful old thing pulled down,' piped Alva, in a pleading tone. "'Pulled down!' exclaimed Wynnette. "'Why, that ancient castle is the pride of his life. The modern one is nothing to be compared with it in value. The oldest part of the ruin is said to be eight hundred years old, while the modern castle is only a poor hundred and fifty. Why, he would just as soon destroy his own pedigree and have it wiped out of the royal and noble stud-book, I mean omitted from Burke's peerage, as pulled down that ancient fortress. Why, child, you do not dream of its value. You have not seen a quarter part of its historical attractions. If you hadn't flunked, I mean fainted, you poor little soul, we should have gone up the broad staircase leading from the hall to the staterooms above many of them in good preservation, and seen the chamber where King Edward I and Queen Eleanor slept when resting on their journey to Scotland, also the other chamber where William Wallace was confined under a strong guard when he was brought a prisoner to England. Well, I don't believe a word of it myself. I suppose all these old battle-axe heroes that ever crossed the border are reported to have slept in every border castle, from Solway Firth to the North Sea. Still, the old ruin is very interesting indeed." And if the makers of the guide-books like to tell these stories, why, I like to look at the historical rooms. Wynnette's last words brought them to the new castle, which they entered just in time for luncheon, in the morning room. End of chapter 42